1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. In this episode for the Intellectual History Channel, I'm delighted to be discussing The Unimagined Community, Imperialism and Culture in South Vietnam, published by Manchester University Press, with its author, Sui La Nguyen, who is the Associate Professor in World Cultures and Language at the University of Houston. This is a wide-ranging work that examines the cultural and political history of the short-lived and often forgotten Republic of Vietnam. In this work, he presents the South Vietnamese perspe- perspective, one that is often excluded. And in that doing so, he explores how the situation was different from the common assessment of a simple two-way struggle between the Vietnamese people and the US, as well as the binary of communism and capitalism. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, first things first, uh, I really enjoyed the book. It was I mean, as I said in the intro, uh, this is an often overlooked thing, uh, era and nation. And I don't need to tell you that, but as someone who is familiar roughly with the region and some of the dynamics, it still was an incredibly eye-opening and engaging read. So how did you come to write this book?
3: Um, So in graduate school, I was uh, kind of unwisely working on two very different projects at the same time. And uh, the first project was gonna be a history of uh, popular culture in South Vietnam, focusing on serialized fiction. So, um, and specifically spy novels and martial arts novels and then popular films too, um, from the period of the late 1960s until um, the end of the war in 1975. And and so that kind of became the second part of the book. And then uh, the other project that I was working on at the same time was um, about the Vietnamese Marxist philosopher, Cian Duc tao And um, so Tao played a pretty important um, but largely neglected role in influencing uh, these figures associated with what's now called um, French theory or uh, post-structuralism. And, um, you yeah, know, so like Derrida, Foucault, um, and Althusser. And it was in the process of doing research for that project that I became somewhat familiar with um, post-war um, philosophical trends uh, that were influential in France, and uh, including existentialism, phenomenology, um, French anti-humanism, and then this philosophy called personalism, um, which was associated with the work of Emmanuel Mounier, And... Um, he was actually a pretty influential figure in France during this period. Uh, uh, his stature, I think, was comparable to um, Sartre during that uh, during that time. <clears throat> and so in any case, I was working on these these two very different projects and trying to shop it to publishers, uh, shop in the publishers. And I had one publisher that was interested in the popular culture project. And so I gave him two chapters, and then he wanted to see a introductory chapter that kind of situated the um, materi- the uh, discussion on media and popular culture in the context of uh, the war in Vietnam. So I went back to looking at the material that I gathered from my research on, on uh, these projects. <clears throat> and for some reason, what, what stuck out to me this time were uh, these documents about Vietnamese personalism, which um, was... Um, uh, Th- this philosophy that was developed by the brother-in-chief political advisor of the South Vietnamese president, Ngo Dinh Ziam, um, based on the philosophy of Mounier, And what struck me about um, the ideas in these documents was that they, um, looking at them this time with a little bit more knowledge of French um post-war philosophy was that it, they really seem to depart from the way that personalism is often characterized in a lot of the literature in the war in Vietnam, where it's portrayed as being um, this sort of muddle-headed mishmash of ideas taken from Catholicism and Confucianism, and, um, <clears throat> or as this kind of um, backwards-looking conservative, if not um, reactionary or even fascist uh, religious ideology and uh what i thought that i could um seem to see instead though was was something that looked much more like a form of marxist humanism um and um so because the concept of the person in Meunier's personalism, of course, is, is kind of an implicit reference to this critique of capitalism that he developed. Uh, the person is opposed to the um, concept of the egoistic bourgeois individual uh, engaged in, in uh, the sort of self-interested exchange on the market, right? Um, and um, there's this critique of capitalism that Mounier developed as being this system in which people or persons become dominated by... Um, things, right, by money, by the money economy. Um, Immunity refers to this as sort of a a condition of depersonalization, which persons become, come under the control of um, the power of capital. Right, and then on top of that, there's also um, this this critique of bourgeois democracy or liberal democracy that Mounier develops too, um, and and, um, and he describes liberal democracy as in in Marxian terms as being uh, the political superstructure of capitalism, right? Um, so, and so all these ideas are actually contained in these documents that I was looking at. The they were the founding kind of documents for the Lao Revolutionary Party, which um, or the uh, the personless revolutionary labor party that go new, uh, established. And, um, so that struck me as, as pretty strange, right? Because here you have the South Vietnamese leaders characterized as reactionary, uh, embracing a political doctrine that had ideas that seemed pretty similar, uh, to that of the Vietnamese communist party that they were fighting with. And so that kind of suggested to me the possibility of what looked like a pretty kind of, um, far-reaching sort of revision of the way the war has ordinarily been characterized as being this contest between capitalism and communism or uh, communism and democracy. And it led ultimately to what would become the main thesis of the book, which is that um, the war in this early phase, at least, was not a contest between capitalism and communism or democracy, but rather um, a struggle between two competing forms of socialism, uh, Stalinist and Marxist humanists. And, so um, and so the two projects that I was working on kind of converged unexpectedly to expose this part of the history that I wasn't aware of before. And it was kind of this lucky accident that my um, my background in critical theory um, allowed me to make what I hope to be um, a contribution to the history of the of the war.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was sort of my, as I said, possibly poorly informed perspective, but I feel like it's probably quite a dominant one, that it was very much a sort of, um, an author- it was an excuse for authoritarian rule uh, in that era, and whether it was... Um, firmly believed in or not it was not really a cohesive ideology and that's something obviously you unpick in the book um so at the helm of the republic we have ngodin uh diem and who is the president right um uh, and he has this he has his brother who's hugely influential um in his and, and in the book uh ngodin knew the um the brother emerges as really the sort of driving force of the ideological project um, and I think what is quite interesting in, in in this sort of formulation is this idea of uh, a revolution which once again goes against this sort of social this sort of social revolution and, and its role in nation building um, which goes against this binary of sort of communism capitalism or uh, liberal democracy versus, um, authoritarian rule sort of thing and so i was wondering w- if you could explain uh briefly possibly about what was what was the purpose of this envisaged social revolution and like sort of what was this vision of a of, of a nation and like what what should we say like what was the situation out of which this emerged uh
3: um let's see so so the Nose had um their own views they, they um So one of the arguments that I make in the first part of the book is that the Ngo's, um, contrary to a lot of the literature, were not political puppets, right? And they and they weren't political puppets because they had very much their own views about how they wanted to, um, how they thought that the war against the insurgency should be waged, and also about how they wanted to modernize Vietnamese society, right? Um, And these views were different from, and I argue, um, ultimately irreconcilable with uh, those of the American government with which they were allied, right? Um, and these views were based on their political philosophy, um, which which was called personalism. And um, th- this personalism, as I mentioned, right, contrary to a lot of the literature in the war, was not a reactionary religious ideology. Um, rather, uh, the Ngo's themselves described it as being a left-wing philosophy. And it was a left-wing philosophy that Was opposed to both capitalism and to liberal democracy, which the No's viewed as being both this legacy of French colonialism, um, in which they described as um, as um, following Mounier as the political superstructure of capitalism. So the No's weren't interested um, in; they didn't subscribe to the goal that. the Americans had in South Vietnam, which was to create this bastion of liberal democracy, right? And and, and this is a project that the Ngo's have often been accused of betraying, right? Um, So they've often been criticized for pretending to be um, a democracy when they were in fact an authoritarian government. But um, they weren't pretending to be liberal Democrats because they didn't believe in liberal democracy. Uh, What they believed in was this kind of communitarian form of democracy or communitarian socialism, I argued. Um, that that would be based on um, this kind of, um, what they describe as sort of this restoration of this ancient Vietnamese tradition of village autonomy, right? Um, And so this is the idea that in in the pre-colonial period, um, the villages were relatively autonomous from the central authority of the imperial court. Um, And so what I argue in the book is that these views put the leaders of the first republic at odds uh, with their American allies and specifically with um, this kind of uh, simple formula uh, for fighting the war that the Americans were pushing on the South Vietnamese though which is basically that you should uh, build up your national army uh, to be able to fight a conventional war and at the same time liberalize your government uh, in order to unify the South Vietnamese people. So the idea is basically by bringing in the political opposition um, you could broaden the base of support and then unite um, the country and then that would um, make it possible to overcome the communists, right? Um, but for the nose, their response was that these oppositional figures whose inclusion within the government would supposedly bring about more democracy were actually members of this elite urban minority, right? Um, or what they described as sort of this comprador urban um class that they regarded as being um, um, the primary agents of economic underdevelopment in Vietnam. Right. So during the colonial period, right, um, this class was um, made their fortune through land, um, through owning land, um, through and through what the Ngo's described as sort of these unproductive activities like usury and um, speculative trading on commodities and so forth. And then during the First Republic, um, this class became the main beneficiaries of the American aid program and this multimillion dollar uh, program to build up the um, South Vietnamese military. And so you have members of this class winning uh, these lucrative contracts that allowed them to import um, these consumer commodities from the US and allied nations. And uh, the flood of these consumer goods um, into the country work to undermine the South Vietnamese economy because, and, and to undermine local industry, which couldn't compete with all of these products uh, coming in. And the main beneficiary of um, this aid money that was going to bring it up to purchase all of these goods was the army of the Republic of Vietnam, right? So the very existence of this army was the primary cause of economic um, underdevelopment. Right. Um, And so on top of that, right, this army, the Ngo's recognized that this army was completely incapable of fighting against the kind of political people's war that the the insurgency was carrying out in the countryside. And it was for this reason then, right, that um, the Ngo's, um, this is the reason that the Ngo's gave for resisting U.S. demands to liberalize the regime. Right. and when it came down to it, or when the Americans in 1963 before the coup were finally threatening to um, a complete withdrawal of all economic assistance, right? the NOS were prepared to say, well, fine then, uh, get out, right? Uh, because they believed that you couldn't fight this war with the kind of conventional force that the Americans were trying to create, and that you couldn't modernize Vietnamese society with this aid program that was perpetuating economic underdevelopment. Um, and I think that it was um, the refusal... Um, and it was the refusal to follow this U.S. advice that ultimately led U.S. officials to encourage this coup um, that brought about the assassination of Zium and his brother, right? Um, so um, so one of the arguments in this first part of the book is that Zium and you were not puppets, right? Um, they had their own convictions, and they followed these through to the end, right? Um, and they also weren't puppets because um, they were... I, th- I, I think that they were trying to do as much as they could to prevent... Um, the escalation of American involvement in Vietnam, right? Knowing that more aid would only create more dependence upon the Americans and knowing that bringing in more American soldiers would undermine South Vietnamese morale and at the same time make the war look like it was an act of imperialism.
2: I mean, and that, that's something, this, the, this sort of uneasy relationship with a, a, a colonial era um, is obviously, once again, quite different to maybe what many people think, where it's sort of, um, the emperor lasts a short period of time after after independence and then it's sort of handed over and then it's sort of like swapping one colonial master for another. And I thought what was quite interesting is this contrast you have of the communist leaders talking about how uh, hypocritical the French were talking about these ra- these rights of man and how they didn't equally enforce them. And then the Ngo's point was actually no. This is the problem. You sort of introduced this individualism, which has caused the breakdown of our communities, and we want to go back to that. So that was. So it's this almost like a cyclical thing, right? Because it's the, the this 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 past they wanted to become the future, um, and it's the first of these contradictions I notice in the book that you talk about. For example, how they're using authority um, in pursuit of an anti-authoritarian vision.
3: Um, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm arguing is it, 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 I'm kind of making this, um, this broader theoretical point to that, uh, you have this kind of, uh, typical characterization of the colonial project and post-colonial theories being this sort of hypocritical enterprise where, um, Europe is going around preaching the rights of man, but denying it in practice to the colonized and, um, what sort of um, the perspective on the nose on this issue is that um, that actu- that gesture is one in, that sort of um, kind of evokes the very rights of man um, that um, th- was used to justify the civilizing mission to begin with. Right. Um, and so and, and so that that characterization of colonialism is inadequate, um, yes. is inadequate and a anti-colonialism. Right. That. Um, really wants to get rid of that legacy of colonialism would have to kind of recognize, right. That the rights of man are kind of bound up with the Imperial project though, rather than being some kind of solution to it. Um, so, and, and this is partly why they, they perceived, um, um, the liberal form of democracy as being sort of a legacy of European colonialism.
2: Yeah. And this vision, uh, Of uh, shall we say, like the future they have. Um, As I said, it's they. They are undoubtedly authoritarian. That that they have this quite advanced um, and and in-depth security surveillance structure. Um, But their end goal is um, going back to your point that they're arguing for a Marxist humanist sort of uh, stance, as opposed to like a a statist bureaucracy Stalinist sort of thing. Their end goal is. it's quite anti-authoritarian, right?
3: Yeah. So, new like his count- his counterparts in the Communist Party believed in um, democratic centralism, right? Um, the use of centralized state power. But the um, what he thought distinguished himself from um, his counterparts in the Communist Party, though, was that uh, the ultimate aim of the use of centralized power would to be would be to create this kind of system of decentralized communities. Um, that would put a check upon centralized state power, and this was the goal of the Strategic Hamlet Campaign. Um, which, which, sent, um, so yeah, so oddly, right? New uh, describes this 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 goal in terms of the Marxian concept of the withering away of the state. Like the state uses its own power in, in order to create a situation where that power is suspended or no longer necessary.
2: And yeah, and once and once again, this this is something that is quite. Um... Remarkable and a great contribution because of the book, because it's sort of out, out marxist the, uh, the, sort of the, the, the Communist Party, who he criticizes, uh, I believe, I'm correct in saying, for basically replacing uh, the role of capital as sort of a, an exploiter of labor with the state. Um, and this sort of this switch is not really an improvement.
3: Right. Yeah, this is something that New takes from Mounier. Um, it takes from Mounier's criticism of Soviet communism. And Mounier's view was that um, Soviet communism was really a collectivized version of capitalism because it was still based on uh, the exploitation of proletarianized labor, which is the basis of capitalism. Um, and so uh, instead of being some kind of alternative um, to capitalism. so So the interesting thing here then is that the the kind of conventional character characterization you get of note and personalism is that he was looking for some kind of in between, um, um, taking the best parts of capitalism and communism. Um, and the argument that I'm making is actually his version of personalism was one that rejected both liberal capitalism and Stalinism and, um, uh, instead proposed this, uh, personalist view of this kind of communitarian decentralized form of democracy.
2: And in doing so, obviously, he draws upon histor- like historic historical uh, precedents, and um, and that's that that's a theme, right? The this um, like I guess like most sort of nation building projects, this use of history. So, the two big themes are resistance against the north, which historically uh, has been against China, and southward expansion. Um, and you mentioned in the book how. In a way, um, the Latinization uh, and enabled this proliferation of print media, which sort of created this new awareness of history, um, or or what they perceive as history. The, the the historical accuracy is uh, debated in the book, um, and they make use of this history to sort of create a future. And this, as you said, the Strategic Hamlets program is a key part of this, because it's seen as part of this southward expansion um, that is sort of modernising, but also Based on um, historical thing, could you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I know um, from the books I have read, um, often uh, and and you you dispute this in the book. They're compared to compared to the British um, policies in Malaya, uh, and they are sort of seen as uh, once again going back to this model of just like authoritarian control. But instead, he has a vision for this. Rather, it's not just it's not just locking people up, so to speak, is it? Yeah, yeah. The book starts with. Um... A
3: genealogy of the concept of culture, which is an, an, um, the word "bangwa," which is which is new in Vietnamese. And um, so I tell this anecdote at the very beginning about Wing Ang Ninh, who's probably one of um, the most prominent anti-colonial leaders during the colonial period, where he makes this famous statement about how um, the Vietnamese had civilization when the French were still living in caves, right? So he's kind of criticizing the French for trying to civilize the Vietnamese, though, when uh, they already had a civilization. But there's a slightly lesser known speech where he makes um, what seems like the opposite argument and says that, in fact, um, the Vietnamese language is very backwards because it has no word for culture, um, so it's below the level of European languages, which uh, which does have this expression, and so he tries to invent this new expression. So there's this this funny um, paradox where the Vietnamese had a civilization, but somehow it wasn't until the French that they had their culture. Um, and, and this was something that a lot of people during the colonial period, intellectuals remarked about that. Um, it's, it's strange that, um, knowing Vietnamese history is such an important thing. And yet their, um, Vietnamese history and culture was not taught in the classroom prior to, um, the colonial period. And a lot of intellectuals during that period, um, then thought that it was imperative that um, schools and textbooks and so forth should be used to ingrain this idea of the Vietnamese nation, ingrain this national history that really didn't exist right prior to the colonial period in the minds of um, all Vietnamese people in order to strengthen the nation. And um, so I kind of take a look at how that sort of um, national culture evolves into the period of the war and, um, and what happens is there's there's this kind of nationalist history that uh, gets developed during the colonial period um, about um, the Vietnamese having uh, this 2,000, 4,000 year history um, that's um, supposedly characterized by these two different phenomenon. Um, the first is the Baku, um, resisting the North or resisting uh, China, right? Um, and then, um, the Nam Dinh or the southward expansion at the same time that the Vietnamese are resisting the Chinese, they're expanding their territory to the south. And um, in the communist uh, propaganda, um, the baku is sort of taken um, as a way of sort of framing the war against the Americans. We've always fought against foreign invaders. Then the French came, we fought them out, and now the, the Americans are simply um, the next in this sort of long nationalist struggle to secure our independence. And um, what the South Vietnamese were trying to do in um, um in developing the strategic hamlet program was trying to frame it in terms of this other side of the national history, the Nam Tien, though. No. Um, so the, the creation of all of these um, strategic hamlets was supposed to be a kind of geographical extension um, that continued this long tradition of um, the Vietnamese struggling to expand their territory. Um, but yeah, so that, um, so for both states, North and South, that that kind of, you um, Framing their their strategies in terms of this nationalist mytho- mythology that was invented during the colonial period it was an important um, important thing.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: And it's actually, and this appears again about regarding um, this sort of clash of US aims and uh, South Vietnamese aims because um, you talk about an organization that is founded that draws upon uh, this sort of almost like Arthurian uh, to take a Western sort of uh, approach to it and that's what appeals to the Americans. This mythology um, of resistance um and is then used um to organise uh, re- resistance in the north um and and this is kind of a a key point that sort of exemplifies this shift in policy and these disagreements right this 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 sort of h- how that unfolds.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's one short chapter in the book devoted to this um, psychological warfare operation known as the Sacred Sword Patriotic League. Um, and this was an attempt by the South Vietnamese and the Americans to kind of create the impression of this um, resistance movement in North Vietnam. Um, and the... Um, the um, discrepancy between how the, uh, the two allies viewed this program was that um, for the Americans, it was purely, it was supposed to be purely spectacular. It was, uh, the idea was basically just to create the impression that there was a resistance movement in the north, not to actually create one. And um, for the South Vietnamese, um, there was kind of a similar aim as with the strategic hamlet. So the idea was that basically by proliferating all of these decentralized um, um, hamlets, that they could sort of somehow kind of, um, um, I guess, I guess sort of um, um, sort of turn the southward advance around, right, and, um, and turn the Nam Dinh into a Bac Dinh and go north and reclaim North Vietnam as well. Um, so for one side, it was a purely um, Kind of spectacular strategy it was just meant to sort of make the enemy believe this was what was going on whereas i think for the south vietnamese they really wanted it to be um a this attempt to kind of expand expand their territory through the use of this this strategy
2: of the um um with the hamlets and that sort of brings us to a key turning point um it might be we might be tempted given the focus on the nose to assume that the book sort of ends with their overthrow but it doesn't and this coup is a pivotal moment and I think it really highlights um, this changing thing and the background of this coup is that these um, as you've mentioned before this American goal of um, a liberal democracy and sort of demoralization um, is very much at odds with uh, a goal of like a, a social renovation um, and a sort of and, and, and this sort of communitarian view that also goes in hand with um actually defeating the north. Um and this builds to this point um where um eventually they give a go ahead for the coup and I the and there's a really, really interesting piece in the book where um you point out how there is this um it's a quote and you point out how there's this sort of discussion he basically there's an argument that uh uh new doesn't really mind what the media are saying cuz he disagrees with it but doesn't the point is that it doesn't matter whether you disagree with it people believe what the media are saying uh and this is this like, key turning point right
3: yeah so I, I think i think the section that you're referring to the um there is the whole kind of motivation behind um the coup was, was this impression that was produced by um, the American media um, that the Ngo's were unpopular, right? Um, that sort of their authoritarian policies were um, kind of undermining the entire war effort because it was alienating so many Vietnamese. Their refusal um, to democratize the government and, and bring in oppositional figures was creating all of this um, widespread um, discontent in, in the cities as well as the countryside um, and that and um, and this impression that um, that the government was incompetent though that um, that Zim didn't see what was happening all of this um, anger that was building and that was because of the incompetent sort of network of um, intelligence they had he was getting false information and um, the paradox of that is that there's a famous statement by by um, um, by one of the generals that participated in the coup after, um, and Yu were assassinated, where he says that, um, look, we had to assassinate them, um, because Ziem was too popular among the the gullible people in the countryside and Yu was too powerful because of the effective surveillance network that he'd set up throughout the country. So, um, so basically they had to kill, um, the, the two South Vietnamese leaders, um, because, because, um, precisely because they were not incompetent and they, and they were too popular,
2: but yeah. Uh, and yeah, and this is really where the sort of the media image starts to play a role in the book, right? Because, um, after this, um, the Americans sort of get the way opposition forces are brought, opposition, uh, groups are brought in. Um, I mean, This is hinted a little bit beforehand because obviously one of the key pivotal images that many people associate with South Vietnam is the self-immolation of the monk, Uh, and and the American perception of that, as as you point out, is that this this is how horrible they are—they're excluding people and people don't like it. And then you point out in the book that actually not that many people in the countryside were even aware it was happening. Um, uh, and this sort of, as you say, sort of as the book sort of explains, starts a shift. So what sort of happens in the immediate aftermath of the coup and what does this mean?
3: Oh, so um, so the second part of the book shifts from politics to culture, um, looking at the kind of cultural impact of uh, the assassination in the coup. And um, the first effect is that, um, is that all of the kind of authoritarian censorship laws and um, the control over media, but also all of these efforts by the First Republic to kind of spread Um, newspapers and so forth into the countryside, um, which were a big part of the strategic Hamlet campaign kind of stop, right? So before the assassination in 1963, there was this whole part of the strategic Hamlet campaign where, um, Hamlets would be given for example um, printing devices um, and radios that they could use to get news from Saigon and, and then they would sort of like mix that news up with local news and then they would get a motorbike where they could circulate this information um, and there was sort of, there's a circulation then of print media going from the cities into the countryside and that effectively stops um, with the assassination and the revolution and this new government gets set up which is described as this government that's sort of indifferent to culture and um, the paradox as many observers at the time um, pointed out, it was that it was precisely their indifference to culture that ended up leading to this kind of um, very large cultural shift. So they basically sort of lift the censorship laws. There's a relatively free market for media that develops in South Vietnam after the assassination. And this instantly leads to the proliferation of newspapers and this whole new kind of ecosystem of um, fiction and popular culture, right? So, so what happens is that uh, all these newspapers are established. The newspapers, in order to stay in business, need to be able to... Um, um, you know, they sell newspapers um, in order to get ads and the way they do this is of course by printing serialized fiction um martial arts novels and so forth um and so suddenly um all of this mass uh, this, uh, th- this new mass entertainment is produced as a result of um, the lifting of censorship laws that follows the assassination in 1963
2: and i believe that's what you uh refer to in the title of the book. Uh, obviously. Um... Many people are familiar with Benedict Anderson's work, uh, Imagined Communities, and the title, uh, which is one of the things that hooked me. Is this uh, is this reference to the unimagined community? Um, and it's at this period that this unimagining, as you say, sort of the 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 the, the bindings that sort of pulled the countryside and the city together, um, and this sort of cultural, uh, this new cultural building, sort of start to fray.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the title of the book is a play on Benedict Anderson's book about nationalism. And um, Anderson, in uh, his book, um, kind of retells the story of the rise of um, nationalism as a result of the introduction of print capitalism into Vietnam. And so what I wanted to do in the second part of the book was kind of pick up um, where that... Uh, where that that story ends in Anderson's book, and look at, look at what happens during the period of the Vietnam War, right? So, of course, um, both North and South are interested in, in in kind of framing their their projects, their political projects, in terms of this national culture, national history, right? That was developed during the colonial period. Um, But the strange thing that begins to happen after the coup in 1965 is you have this kind of rapid urbanization as all these peasants are pushed out as a result of the violence in the countryside, the development of this mass culture. And um, because of the instability in the countryside and the violence and the fact that the government is no longer concerned about culture, no longer wants to make sure that uh, the countryside is receiving these newspapers and government publications. And because of the fact that um, private distributors, it's... um, it too dangerous right to get their material out to the countryside Um, there's kind of this disconnect right between the media being consumed in the countryside and in the cities and uh, there's a shift too in um, the content the material that urban uh, dwellers are looking at right whereas during the colonial period uh, the countryside uh, was considered the site of this authentic vietnamese culture suddenly um, the market for media in the cities become much more focused on um, things that city dwellers are interested in. And I think gradually what you have happening is kind of, um, as the war continues, is this, uh, this growing disconnect in terms uh, between the countryside and the city in terms of what people are consuming and reading. Um, so, so the communists are describing um, this process as being a sort of uh, this destruction of the national culture that was created during the colonial era where, um, the cities are being flooded, though, with foreign um, mass entertainment um, and martial arts serials and so forth. And uh, th- uh, the communists are, are, are characterizing this as having this um, dissolving effect upon national consciousness and, and upon class consciousness. And they are... Um, are. Um, insisting that this must be some kind of cultural plot on the part of the Americans, right? Um, That's much more deadly, much more sophisticated than what the French were trying to do with simply um, destroying Vietnamese culture and replacing it with French culture. Here, uh, the Americans are completely trying to dissolve culture as such, right? Uh, By by inundating the cities with this sort of trash. And so what I try to do in the book, though, is um, is sort of analyze how this phenomenon is is not something deliberate, uh, but rather just this kind of um, accidental byproduct of the indifference to cultural questions that um, characterizes the leadership that comes into power after Ngo assassination in 1963.
2: And in the book, you attribute this... um... Uh, you attribute sort of the escal- escalation and increased U.S. involvement to this sort of uh, breakdown as well, right? Because with this liberalization, these n- new views are coming out that aren't necessarily supportive of uh, the government or the war.
3: Yeah, the um, the um, so the liberalism um, that the the First Republic, um, Ziem's government tried to contain, right? Um, all that kind of comes back with the vengeance after his death. Right. And, um, uh, newspapers, um, you know, rather than being sort of organs of propaganda for the Americans and the South Vietnamese though, are, are, uh, just contain criticisms, all sorts of sort of political views are expressed during this period. It's really, um, it's, it's described in a lot of the documents that I've seen as a really kind of freewheeling period where, um, so much kind of opposition to the government is tolerated. Um, and so, um, and so yeah, so so it's interesting, right? That you get sort of these contradictory accounts by Northerners, right? That that sort of experience the the kind of um, freedom of media uh in in the south during this period right so you get you know these conspiratorial accounts about how um it's got to be that the americans have invented some kind of plot though using culture to dissolve national consciousness and then and then you have these accounts by um actually people like john Tao too the first time he was able to um listen to some of the music that was produced in south vietnam during this period he was utterly shocked by um you know, how the music could talk about the sorrows of war in this way that seemed totally paralyzing, right? That, that would never have been possible in the North. Um, and so the argument that I'm making there is that um, none of this was, was sort of deliberate. It um, had to do with sort of this, um, the replacement of Ziem's government with um, leadership that was largely indifferent to the question of culture and just allowed um, for the emergence of this free market for media and culture.
2: Uh, and, uh, yeah, and yeah, and you also sort of that 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 sort of contradictory view of the no- by the Northerners appears uh, at, th- at numerous points. You talk about how, as you say, they come in and they're like, "Wow, look at all this culture," and then there's this sort of immediate um, destruction of it. And then, but also there is this period of time where the cultural production is uh, commodified. Uh, it is uh, they they are existing just to do these serializations and entertain.
3: Right, right. Yeah. It, um, there's this description um, by South Vietnamese writers have, um, about how they, um, it's no longer possible for them to produce literature, right? There's this sort of compulsion that the market for media exerts upon them, forcing them to sort of produce. So you have um, um, these writers during that period, though, that, that produced Hundreds and hundreds of novels without even knowing so, right? Um, and and that's simply because they're writing for newspapers, and newspapers need um, serialized fiction um, to keep the advertising going and keep people paying for the newspapers. And so they're paying more and more for this stuff. And so, um, yeah. So oddly, um, you have a situation um, where where um, that that um, the writer Voss of he describes as one in which there's there's more and more readers right um uh, but it becomes less and less possible to produce literary works right because there's so much demand for this kind of para-literature serialized fiction and
2: um and
3: pulp romances and that sort of thing during this period
2: Um obviously ultimately this contributes to this um disin- as you say, this 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 sort of growing disinterest and almost like fatigue and eventually um that ends with sort of with the fall of saigon um and there is this um, a, a, a new government imposed, and I think what underlies all of this is this uh, the, me- the the role of the media, right? I mean, the, the global media, um, because you also mentioned how, um, how how South Vietnamese readers were interested in reading or are increasingly uh, reading Western perspectives of the war and 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 of their thing, which obviously was. Sometimes removed, and um, though um, we might not talk about it in the same terms, was obviously quite influenced by state directions or state policies, or um, to to push war or to ease off. So, in that sort of sense, um, the, the, this, as you as you mentioned, this sort of spectacle is, 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 is a key part of it. Possibly an impossible question, and, and not in the book, um, but based on your um, based on your uh, understanding and research do you have any ideas of what might have happened if there wasn't the coup
3: the argument that i kind of make in the book it's um it's um it's, it's it's not well developed but that um what the nos were attempting to do through the strategic Hamlet campaign was this sort of um program of rural modernization um an attempt to establish um, a kind of alternative form of modernity, right? Where you would have um, this sort of decentralized system of communities that I was talking about. Um, And that was supposed to serve simultaneously, right? As this counterinsurgency measure um, that they thought would be much more effective than trying to use this conventional army to be able to fight against this people's war. But what ended up happening with the collapse of the first Republic was um, essentially the country enters this, long period of interregnum, um, political turmoil. And, um, it forces the American escalation. And since the Americans I think are incapable of kind of organizing the type of program that the Ngo's envisioned, what ended up happening instead of, um, the establishment of this alternative form of modernity that the Ngo's envisioned was massive rural depopulation, um, and what Samuel Huntington called um, forced draft modernization, um, as millions of refugees right are pushed from the countryside into the cities, um, and so I think that that could possibly have been averted. Um, that the ngos had um, what they viewed as a far less violent way of containing um, the insurgency that would have made it possible potentially, right, to um, keep the war from escalating and forcing um, the Americans to enter in these large numbers and become engaged in this destructive
2: kind of war of attrition. Right. Yeah. That's definitely something to think about. So as we come to, also to the end, um, I just want to thank you, Professor Win, for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on and your it, it work's generally enjoyable and definitely an engaging read that shattered some preconceptions i had uh, but just before we say uh, farewell um i was wondering i'm sure uh, our listeners would be very interested to hear about anything you're working on or uh, or is in the pipeline
3: um so so my next project is actually going to be one of the projects that i was supposed to do in, in, in graduate school which is uh, the book on junduk tao so I'm working now on, um, looking at, um, gender contributions to Marxism and to phenomenology.
2: Okay. Well, I hope, I imagine, uh, that that's going to be equally as uh, revelatory and, uh, insightful. Um, cause I know I'll definitely be looking out for it. Um, I just want to thank you once again. And, uh, that's just, this is just a, A reminder that today you've been listening to the Intellectual History Channel on the New Books Network, and we've been discussing the unimagined community, imperialism, and culture in South Vietnam. Out now.